0: eftm
1: tech cars lifestyle this is the eftm podcast with travel on eftm g'day g'day welcome to the eftm podcast great to have your company for another week here on the eftm podcast travel on with you taking your calls um, and talking about technology in our lives as our days go by um, a couple of things i want to talk about this week in fact um, this morning, as I record Tuesday uh, on the Today Show, we talked about screen time for kids, and so I want to unpack a little bit, that a little bit further with the researcher, the associate professor from the University of Queensland, who did some of the research that prompted the the conversation this morning. And just, I don't know, just talk about screen time a little bit from a parent's perspective and you know, a, a guidelines perspective, not regulation, but it's all about guidelines and health and well being. And I think it's a fascinating thing to to unpack. So we will talk about that on this week's show. We're also, and this, oh, for me, it feels left field, but I do think there's something in it. Um, a conversation with uh, Lambro Fodius from Station 5. Now, Station 5 is a software company. They're all about helping startups, you know, AFR, Fast Starter, and all these kind of, you know, great buzzwords. But it's a conversation about Aussie, well, just talent generally in tech and whether or not it's going to be lost to Australia in the same way that manufacturing has. There isn't much manufacturing in Australia as, as, we, as we know. Forget about cars, but you know, in terms of technology, there's not either. I think road and road's probably the biggest and best example of that. We talked about it on the Australia Day episode of Two Bikes Talking Tech. I think it's, it was a good chat. But, you know, the money that's being earned in Australia, this is the, the challenge. It's great money in Australia but that doesn't make it affordable for business. So because the individuals in software and tech are getting paid so well, it's unaffordable for business to be in tech, you know, to get software developed here and those kind of things. And I've got to be honest, I see it in a very small way in the app world, but imagine being a big company trying to do technology. Of course you're going to go to where the price is better. So that a uh, strange conversation. But I think a good one to have, let's let's unpack that. Um, got a few calls as well, uh, lots to get through, uh, whether it's about internet or um, whatever else might be on your mind. Um, portable speakers, you name it, we've got a covered. Uh, happy to always help and take your calls, take your emails. So send me an email, eftm.com, click on Ask Trev up the top and I will get in touch with you as best I can. Um, next week's going to be a busy, busy week because Tuesday – there's actually a lot, a lot going on. I don't know that we will get to a show next week or I might defer and do something um, slightly different because there may be some travel involved in next week. So it's going to be an interesting one. We have a bit going on here in EFT. I've also um, rearranged the office. Tell me this. When I was a kid, um, I don't know if it was to clean my room or just to give me a fresh approach, I would always measure my bedroom draw it on a piece of paper I'd measure out my furniture what little there was I had like a desk with a hutch and bed and bedside table maybe uh, maybe a set of drawers I don't know Um, and I would I would play around put you know draw the door on the on the map and I would play around with where the furniture could be just to try and you know change it up a bit I reckon I have rearranged this office Five times in a year and a half. I'm actually really happy with where I've settled. It's quite funny because it's... (laughs) In terms of where my desk... Where I'm sitting right now, very similar to where I was the first day we moved in here. Um, But with with everything that changed here at EFTM, I kind of wanted to move away from that. But actually, what I've learned is I had it right first go. Um, But just trying to mm, create zones... Within the office, my TV Today Show zone, and I've created another kind of side corner where I hopefully I can do a bit more video work uh, as the gadgets start rolling in. But it's also a very slow time of year. Got to be honest with you. I don't know why, but it's a very slow time of year. Um, yeah, it's – I've struggled uh, not only to th- find things to talk about here. I think Stephen and I, luckily, we have a good report, so we can talk about anything underwater for an hour, but – The topics haven't been strong. My radio set every week, uh, you know, I'm kind of making things up as I go along. There's really not a lot of content out there. I don't know. It's it's fascinating. Or I'm just missing it. Let me know what you think. Please don't be too negative. I accept criticism as long as it's broadly positively constructive. (laughs) Anyway, let's get cracking. EFTM. This is the EFTM podcast. EFTM podcast. All right, you got a tech question? Go to the website, EFTM.com, send me an email. I'll try and help you out. G'day, Yusuf.
2: G'day, Trev. How are you going?
1: Good, mate. What can I do for you?
2: I'm just after a speaker for a gym and well, something that might withstand a bit of dropping and heavy use.
1: Yeah. How how loud how do you want it to be? Is it a, When you're at a gym, you have to speak to me like I'm an idiot because I've never been to one. <laughs> oh,
2: you, should, you should try. Um, we've got about maybe ten to fifteen guys in a enclosed space. Yep.
1: Okay. It so it's get, it's for everyone to be able to enjoy while you're in there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It does get quite loud with a few boys in there. Yeah. 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 What what sort of budget you got? Oh, maybe six hundred dollars. I was looking at the JBL. Is it the two? The Mega Boom, I think.
1: Uh, the Boombox.
2: Yes, that's the one.
1: You know what? I I don't disagree. The Boombox is a cracker. It's a big bugger. I, I do have a tiny concern about how much of a beating it could take. Yep. I would personally recommend to you that you save a couple hundred bucks and go yep. the JBL Extreme 3. It's, I mean, it doesn't look as big. Like the boom box looks enormous, right? It's it's probably yep. half the size that it looks. But fair income, mate, it'll pump out some sound, like serious sound. And you could drop that thing. Frankly, you could probably splash it with water; it'll still be fine. So, I personally think the JBL Extreme Three, which is only three ninety nine at JB Hi-Fi, is probably perfect in in all in all reasonable sense. The boombox is definitely going to be bigger, louder, but yep. I don't know that in a in a room. Like, if you were outdoors, if you said to me we were at the park and we were doing like you know gym sessions. Maybe yep. you'd need something like the boombox because the sound will dissipate out- yep. outdoors. But if it's indoors, mate, the JBL Extreme, we use it outdoors when we've got the projector set up and, you know, watching a movie, the JBL Extreme. It's great. I might
2: have to give that a shot. Uh, so, I had a, uh, the, the uh, ultimate ears and it's sort of um, the, the charging would go after a while. So yeah. It wouldn't
1: one of those long. like your
2: little UE booms. Yeah. So when you charge it, it just wouldn't connect anymore. It wouldn't charge anymore. I mean- I would turn
1: them twice. The, really? Oh geez, yeah. and so not after a couple of years? You mean just like in a few months, six months? Both oh, that's them. horrible. Yeah. I so mean, I the, that can these work. things will all—you know—the durability of the battery will go over years. But mate, no, no, if you're absolutely spot on, if it's failing like that within months, take it back. You should get 15 hours of of play time from the extreme, yeah. um, which means, mate, hey, just plug it in every every night and charge it up for the next day session. Basically, it would be the go.
2: Oh, awesome it comes, a look into comes with an arm
1: strap as well so it's easy to kind of move around as well um, a bunch of colors so mate the jBL extreme 3 399 it's a cracker oh
2: you on me all
1: right buddy good luck you appreciate
2: your help thank Cheers, you very mate. much
1: good on you it's and uh, no you won't find me working out the gym sorry mate it's not my go um, but uh, it is a good speaker there are so many good speakers on the market but it's funny the the market has kind of separated out I feel. We've got these super cheap brands, and I get that. You know, there's always going to be super cheap brands, um, but then you've pretty much got, you know, JBL, Ultimate Ears, Sony. Um, maybe you'd put Sonos in there, but that's really only got they've only got really got that one. Rome, but you know, the JBL's got something in every price point. Ultimate Ears have a few in that kind of mid to low range, and then Sony have some big. Buggers and some medium size. Uh, it's, it's a great time. It's a great market to be in. They're all awesome. Like the sound is amazing. But I do think that extreme three is an underperformer in terms of recognition for three ninety nine. Good sound, big sound, good sound. Love it. Uh, good luck with that one, Yusuf. This
3: is the AFTM podcast. The well, we did a
1: story this morning on the Today Show, and I thought it was worth expanding on a little bit more because it's all very brief and quick when we do those conversations. There was some research out today out of the University of Queensland about screen time in kids. And it's something I don't think we've talked about a lot, which is the challenge of having more than one child, especially across different age brackets. So Associate Professor Lee Tooth from the School of Health at the University of Queensland joins me on the line to talk more about the learnings that they have. G'day, how are you doing?
3: Hi, very well, thank you.
1: So this is fascinating. I mean, in some part I want to say, it's kind of obvious, but I think it's critical that these kind of things are brought to the attention of of people and I guess governments mm. and, and regulators, so that we can mm. we can better inform parents. What what are the key things that that you learnt from the study? What did you set out to study?
3: Yeah, well, I think you captured it in a nutshell. We've done um, research on adherence to screen time guidelines, which came out a couple of years ago no. uh, from the MJA, and um, but you're right. We wanted to know how hard is it when parents have children that span different screen time categories to actually, you know, ensure that their children do adhere to guidelines. So, uh, you know, for, for those of your listeners who don't know, guidelines for children under no exposure to screens. Before, it's one hour a day. And for children aged 5 to 12, it's two hours a day or, you know, 5 to 17 basically. Um And so, what we wanted to do was say, well, if you've got a family that's got, say, two or three children that span these different categories, they might have a a one-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. You know, how is adherence happening in that family? So, we got a cohort of women who were actually in in a larger study of um, Australian longitudinal study of women's health. Mm -hmm. We got about... um, 2,000 mothers who between them had about 4,500 children and we analysed data by whether children were in the same category or span different categories and basically what we found was that for families that have children who were in the same screen time category so they might have a a five-year-old and a nine-year-old or they might have a a two-year-old and a four-year-old about half of those families are able to um, ensure their children are meeting the guidelines. Right. However, if you've got a family that's, that's got children spread across the categories, um, there's a much smaller percentage, only about 20%. And,
1: and it's difficult, right, because this is the challenge that, that it just isn't discussed because it's all well and good to have guidelines um, mm. or, or, frankly, as a family, to have rules. Um, mm. But I'll tell you, in my family, for example, 10, 11-year-old and a 15-year-old, now, mm. do you think the 15-year-old truly has screen time? No, there's no real limitation there. It's just common sense and we have conversations and there's homework and there's a whole range of things that need to go on.
2: Mm. But the two
1: little ones notice that and they notice their screen time rolls up after an hour or so and they're wondering, well, why does the older one get to do it? And we just keep saying, well, you're going to be older too soon. Um, <laughs> but it's hard sometimes and that's the challenge mm. as a parent is sometimes I want to mow the lawns or got, we've got to do the dishes or whatever's got to be done. Sometimes mm. Mm. it's actually easier just to go, yeah, okay, fine, for a day, whatever. <laughs> That's a challenge,
3: isn't it? It is. And I think, as you said this morning on your show, um, it's all about sitting down and having discussions within the family. But I also feel there's a side for um, the people, the government, the people who make these guidelines, Mm. whether it's for physical activity or screen time or sleep or diet, because all these things act together. That's right. um, um, To try to have some practical tips or suggestions to help parents do it, especially when their children have got to meet different guidelines, because no parent can easily make this happen, you know, especially when they've got several children. It's really hard.
1: How do you make a two-year-old a, how, how do you bring government yeah. into, into a family in that sense? Um, um, is it families that need kind of an overbearing or an overarching kind of authority to say to their kids, this is what's recommended? Or is it parents that just. Throw their arms in there and don't know what to do. That need that guidance. I'm just trying to understand where where the government mm. comes in. You know, where do guidelines play a role, and and who's responsible for them? Because it's hard. It's it's probably wrong to say government is, isn't it? Because it's just a. It might be an agency or a, or a um, third party of government that does the research or finds creates the guidelines. But parents and so kids often shun kind of government intervention, don't they?
3: Ah, uh, look. I think in terms of guidelines, the. National guidelines for physical activity and movement, for, for diet, they come from the National Health and Medical Research Council, mm-hmm. which is funded by the government. And the, the government puts those guidelines up on its website. And guidelines are just that. They're a guide. They're yeah. to help us, not only as children, but also as adults with how much we should drink to reduce our incidence yeah. of certain cancers, you know, healthy diet, or that sort of thing. And I think... I think guidelines are are useful as a parent when you're new to to the parenting thing and Mm. you're not quite sure, well, how many, you know, how can I help my child have a healthy diet? And there are some really good tips, for example, in the Australian Dietary Guidelines on, you know, this is an example diet you could give your four-year-old. And right. it just gives parents ideas. It's and not I like it's a we, meal
1: plan. It's not a menu. It's um. It's no, an example. It's it, a helper. It's and so
3: ideas. Yeah, the idea is that parents and,
1: can sit down and go. Well, so you know, the guidelines say you know, two to four hours. Two to four year olds, one hour per mm-hmm. day, and you mm-hmm. know, we can talk about what that impacts on us and how mm-hmm. our lives may or may not need more or less than that. Um, mm-hmm. Also, an individual child. Um, you know, one child might react differently to excess or, or a smaller amount of screen time. So it is a very individual thing as well. I mean, it, mm. it's an important thing for, as I said this morning, for a family to discuss. But there's the other challenge, and I don't know how much of this you, know, you would have seen through even the research and guidelines, but the other challenge is peer parenting. Um, I'm just making that up as I go along in terms of a terminology, but, you know, there's other parents who um, don't have guidelines. Don't have mm, rules, mm, and mm. that becomes a challenge for you as a parent who does have rules, because your kids are seeing something else. They're seeing a different behaviour through their mates or whatever it might be. And I always say to my kids, "Bad luck, you've you've lucked out in the game of life here because you've got the bloke that has to talk about this <laughs> on TV." I'm always going to be the, I'm always going to have to be closer to harsh than than the other end because I can't be seen to be, um, you know, telling, saying one thing and doing another. Um, But that peer parenting thing, I think, is a problem as well.
3: Uh, Look, absolutely. I mean, that's not something that I've actually researched. But I guess I would just, again, draw it back to the fact that, you know, there's no absolute you must do this. But a guideline is aimed to to try to inform the population about practices that can help them to have the the sort of the healthiest health outcomes possible. Um, If you think about the rising um, development of, say, obesity in adolescents, and you can link that back to behaviours in childhood of mm. things like diet and exercise and screen time and sleep. And so, I, I guess that's what guidelines are for—that um, as a as an aid uh, to help parents get educated, I guess, I guess about what things could actually help. What but the, yeah, it's hard. What do the
1: guidelines actually talk about with regards to what is a screen? Because there's that other challenge of when I was a kid, screen time was TV time in the afternoon. Yes, so is yes. it a combination of things and do we need to, a bit more effort into that? Because, you know, I, I find it kind of feel more comfortable with my kids sitting back on the lounge watching TV than I do more time on the iPad. But then let me, you know, blow the world out mm. of, out in terms of definitions. I, I have a big problem with the definition of a TV time, uh, you know, Netflix kids versus YouTube. I, I often mm. walk in and, and say to the kids, no more YouTube go to something i just say go to de- something decent which is netflix or stan or something that's been mm. been created mm. because there's rabbit holes so again there's the physical mm. screen and there's the content that's on it too we have so much to do here
4: as mm. a society
1: around educating parents as to what mm. not not just how long you're on a screen but what you're doing on a screen
3: mm. and i would i would completely agree with that and i would also add that from a from a research perspective the Research into the effects of screen time in the scheme of things is actually quite new because a lot of the earlier studies that have shown links with potentially poorer developmental outcomes, particularly for little kids that are spending too much time, are based on television because that was the major... Device that was around when the research was done. Now there there is more research coming through that is looking at the quality of what they're watching and the educational content of it. Um, and so things are changing. But certainly, if you think about a small child, you think about a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old. That child learns through play, that child develops through exploring mm. their environment and play, not by sitting and staring mm. at a device. So if you just think about, particularly for the little ones, there's got to be a balance of that active play, using their hands, putting things in their mouths, falling over, yeah. you know, all that sort of thing that little kids need to do to to develop. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly screens are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Every second child seems to, or maybe every Every child seems to have a smartphone from a very young age. it's It's extraordinary. and the research really needs to really needs to catch up.
1: <laughs> and i I think that the research and the research, the guidelines, and the generational change that's occurring, um you know i've I've had this, you know, my oldest is fifteen, so I've kind of been having this digital, screen time conversation now for at least 15 years um, mm. from a from a kind of place of, of, of knowledge you know, in terms of usage but it's funny talking to parents or you know of kids who are now like 20 25 or even older there's this reluctance to accept that a screen could be a thing um, and I used to have this with different hosts I would work with and it's like you need to understand that an iPad um, for 20 minutes while you're cooking dinner, might be a completely educational tool if it's if it's the right things mm. that they're doing on there. Mm. And so we do need to shift that whole generational mm. conversation around the mm. negativity around the term screen time as well.
3: Oh, oh, look, I completely agree. And I think there is some some nice sort of research that's happening now that is showing that, that it can be enriching if parents co-view with the child to explain yeah. concepts, if it has educational components or other components that can um, – you know, sort of aid the development of the child because the other thing um, that uh, you know a screen does is it replaces social interactions that that child might have with with other people, with with um, with their parents, with mm. caregivers. Um, if they're just staring at a passive screen, so it all depends on what's on that screen. You're 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 right.
1: It's a fascinating area. I mean, it's it's a wonderful to have a conversation about uh, screen time broadly uh, from a research point of view because. I think shining a light on that need for continual uh, re- revision of those guidelines, and also just exposing parents to the guidelines so that they know that they mm. exist, because mm. a lot of the time it is just what did you do or what do your mates do, and you know it's 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 mm. thumb in the air kind of stuff. So it's an important mm. conversation to have, and I appreciate the work you've done on it and the conversation that we've had about it. Associate Professor Leetooth, uh, congratulations on the work, and and hopefully much more um, insights to come from you.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks.
1: Taking your calls, you've got a tech question, go to the website eftm.com. Trevor Long here to help. Tristan, good day, mate. How are you doing?
4: Yeah, good, thanks. How are you?
1: Yeah, really good. What can I do for you?
4: Yeah, so at the moment, I'm um, uh, looking at connecting some internet into my home, and um, unfortunately, I have to, uh, if I wanted MBN, I'd have to uh, run some new cable to the to the pit, so um, looking at alternative options. You just is... moved in. Yes.
1: What did the previous yeah. owners or tenants have?
4: Uh, I'm not too sure, but I believe what what we found is um, we've got some old cable <laughs> which had been um, cut, and um, and therefore, in order to to be able to get that um, all set up, it's um, a lot of work. Um, mm. So we're just looking at that. And, and how
1: have you how have you established that through a telco or through an electrician?
4: An electrician.
1: Have you spoken to a telco? No, not yet. Um, oh, I, before you do anything, I, I would speak to a telco <clears throat> because there's a there's a question here about, I guess the uh, what do they call it universal service, service obligations of the NBN. Um, I would personally argue for at least a little while <laughs> in a couple of days of yeah. conversation that the NBN is obligated to provide a service to your home. Now if the NBN has not been physically installed in your home at any point, then you're entitled to be the first one to do that and I believe they're required to provide that to your home, not to the pit to the home. So oh, man, I'd want a telco and I personally I'd bring Aussie Broadband because they've got the best support centre just to have a conversation with to explain the situation. But maybe don't go into too much detail early on about what you found about cables cutting things. Just talk about the fact that uh, you want NBN. They'll do a lookup of your address and they'll say, well, it's bookable or whatever it is. And, you know, if they book a connection and the NBN come out and find that there's a cable that needs to be run, mate, up until the wall of your house, that's their job.
4: Okay, uh,
1: that's good to know. <clears throat> Do you know what I mean? Like, I—that's my personal belief. I'm not putting that in legislation. I'm not reading that from yep. any law. I just think that that's the first port of call you should have because you're entitled to be able to connect to the NBN. That's why the government spent billions of dollars, right? Um, yeah. Now, have you spoken to neighbours? Do you know what sort of NBN they're all getting? Is it fibre to the node, or are they getting? Are you in a rural area? What? What are you? What sort of area are you in?
4: It's um, it's fibre to the node.
1: So um, you know, okay. So you know that for sure that everyone's got node connections. So yeah. therefore, and that's why your electrician has looked at the cable and gone, "There's no copper into your house or something." They've they've found.
4: Yeah, I, I think from previous works, it's um, it's the cables have snapped, and um, unfortunately, the uh, the cable it was an old, it's an old home, nineteen fifties home, so um, yeah. and you know the, the cable, the, the cable was <laughs> run underground without any conduit, right? Like that, yep.
1: So. Yeah. And look, I just think that at some point you need to just really define who's responsible for what, um, because there hasn't been a previous service there or that you know of. Um, I would ask that question of of a telco. Aussie Broadband would be my suggestion, as I said, just because they got such a cool call center. They're very relaxed Aussies. You know, they're they're going to actually help uh, as best they can. Um, I wouldn't mind, and I might send you a note just to get your address because I wouldn't mind getting someone from the NBN to find out for me what the situation is. But where are you at with alternatives? What What were you thinking in terms of let's assume that the running a cable is an expensive thing. Have you had a quote? Like what, what's it going to cost?
4: Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. It's just, just been told by um electrician Sparky, and you a said number you're, of You're dreaming them. basically, don't, don't do it. Because <laughs> they got to dig a yeah, pit, they've got to run a conduit. Yeah, and um, you know, dig a trench and, and do all that. Yeah. The um, the alternative that I've been looking at was uh, fixed wireless or mobile broadband. Yep. Um, and yeah, I was just uh, I was wanting to know basically what's a, a preferred and. Um,
1: Mate, I would. The start, first thing yeah. I would do is I would check the Optus website um, for your address, and they have a thing called Optus Five G. Um, and if you're in an Optus 5G area, then, I mean, that would be an amazing solution because they, it's just a box that plugs into power, probably best off near a window so you get good um, um, good actual reception. Um, but a box plugged into power, it gets the internet from the 5G network and it then gets you lets Wi-Fi through the home. Um, like it's literally, it's perfect, it's all you need, Right. Um, mm-hmm. that mobile broadband. In terms of price, I think Optus is the best option. Telstra have the same product, but it's a bit more expensive. Um, Vodafone, Ionet, TPG, that that business is all one business. Again, they have a certainly a 4G option, and they'll have a 5G option soon. Um, so definitely worth, I mean, Optus, I believe, off the top of my head, is like $89 for, like, do your best. Unlimited data, great speed, you know, like high speed. Um, and so, if you look that look at that as your baseline, eighty nine dollars. Anything more than that, you're going to pay is too much. Yep. Um, I know in Perth you've also got uh, Petinet, Pentinet. Um, I haven't tried them. Don't know much about them, but I know that they're a strong network. So they're you know they're trying very hard to to make that happen. Um, basically, when you have wireless, it's more expensive. So per the cost. Per gigabyte, per megabyte is more because certainly with Telstra and the and the like, op, that's why Optus's plan is so good. But you may not be yet in a in a five G area. So, first port of call is to ring Aussie Broadband and ask about an NBN connection. Uh, second port of call is maybe to ring iiNet and ask them whether they have a mobile broadband solution. Um, it might only be four G, but you know you should get twenty to fifty megabits per second, which is probably on par with what you get fibre to the node. Depending mm-hmm. on do you know how far away from the node your house is.
4: No, not idea. Uh, it's,
1: it's You know, Have you physically seen metres, it? I think so. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a distance. So you're going to be at the long end of the stick, which means you're going to be at the slow end of the speed. So even yeah. a 4G wireless broadband from IONet would be a good solution. So try Aussie broadband for NBN. Uh, check your Optus coverage, which I've just had a look at the suburbs. It's not looking amazing, I'll be honest. Um, and then check with IONet and just compare IONet to Peternet and see which one gives you the best value, mate.
4: Yeah, all right, no worries. And let me
1: know because I'm, I'm super curious whether or not that uh, that uh, NBN solution should be activated, you know. It's their job. I'm really curious about that. So, yeah.
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely get back to you. Um, it's interesting to know that. So, yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. Um, but I have been um, over the last week just sort of looking around and um, you mentioned Pentanet. I have um,
1: – What are they office. worth? What's that cost?
4: Um. This varies, but um, I think the most expensive plan that they've got is about $90 a month um, okay. with um, really good, really good speeds. Um, I think you, you know your, your lower end is about $65 a month yeah. um, with speeds of 30 um, and a limit on your uh, on your download. But yeah, I'm uh, just looking at their 100.
1: website now. You know, 60 meg speed, 10 up, $94 a month with unlimited data. I mean, the key thing for me is unlimited data. It's just if you get stuck on a plan that gives you 200 meg or something data, 200 gig, you you become, it's a terrible thing to say, you become second class. You can't stream as frequently and freely as everyone else is. So, yeah, I'd want to make sure you're getting unlimited data, mate. That's, that's the yep. most important part of any of those fixed wireless plans is unlimited data. No worries. Good luck, mate. I'll send you an email. Send me your address. I'll ask. Uh, I've got a great contact in WA at the NBN, so I'll just I'll ask a cheeky question while you do the same at Aussie Broadband, <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll find out what's going on for you.
4: Sounds good. Thanks, Trevor.
1: Good on you, mate. And uh, if you've got a question like Tristan, uh, get in touch. Happy to try and help. Uh, it's a fascinating thing, you see. We, uh, we're past the NBN build stage, so we don't really talk about the NBN being kind of responsible for much anymore, but – I um, I don't know. I think – I'm curious because I think there's an obligation there. I'll be fascinated to know what happens there. We shall see. This is the AFTM podcast. So I mentioned earlier the the conversation around losing manufacturing in Australia and how there's some level of concern about just kind of losing the tech sector entirely. And it's a kind of fascinating conversation because what I read into the information I received today was, hey – if you're getting into developing and you know coding and tech generally, there's good money, but the problem is that good money means that doing stuff in Australia is expensive, and therefore the the industry may not be able to flourish and may disappear. So to discuss that, Lambros Fotios from uh, Station Five is on the line. G'day, Lambros.
5: G'day, Trevor. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, this is fascinating because it's not my normal kind of um, wheelhouse, as they say, but in terms of Tech, I mean, we think about our kids and the future jobs and all those kind of things, all all, all eyes, all roads point to tech as being a, a good place, you know, lots of jobs in the future and you're telling me good money, but that's not all good.
5: Yeah, it's an interesting one, right, because I think, you know, if you're keeping track of the news and kind of what's going on, the budget, all we see is that there's tremendous amounts of money being poured into the tech sector, mm. You know, we're always pointed to the story of Atlassian and how they're kind of the flagship. You know, here's a tech company that. What you know, we're going to see a lot more of this over the years ahead.
1: Yeah,
5: and you know, it's 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 a bit daunting at the moment. I think the reality is, if you look at what's happened with border closures, what was happening prior to COVID, there's this there's this huge shortage of talent, and you can kind of push as much money into the industry as you want. But if the industry can't support that funding uh, just due to a lack of supply of resourcing into the industry, then you've got a huge issue where we we as a country are not actually capable of producing all this technology that that we need to, to live up to the expectation.
1: So is the problem um, or the solution more migration or lower wages or both? Because it's a kind of fascinating thing, isn't it? You know, we want... We want our jobs to be well-paid here, but we also got to be very careful not to out-price out ourselves from the rest of the market. But if you bring in large amounts of skilled migration, doesn't that bring the prices down and take away the – I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm so baffled by it, I'll be honest.
5: You know, one of the reasons we've seen COVID kind of catalyse or I guess amplify this issue rather is because we relied as a, as a country so heavily on, on imports. Right. You know, we, we relied on on, you know – effectively talent from other countries coming into australia on skilled visas and you know filling those tech those tech roles and what's happened in in light of covid and border closures is that that, that huge stream of talent that we relied so heavily upon mm. has ceased to exist for, for over 2 years now and the industry's hurting so supply has been cut drastically or at least growth in supply You've had a lot of the talent that was here go back home, go back to Europe, go back to the US. And so what it's left is a very kind of short supply of of developers or engineering talent, which has driven prices way up and has meant that only the largest corporations in Australia can actually support those salaries. So startups who we rely so heavily upon for innovation are no longer able to actually pay local software developers to get the job done.
1: And that's, I guess, the challenge is we're going to end up just sending all of our work offshore. So you're you're saying that um, a good amount of skilled migration um, paired with Aussie jobs, um, well, they are Aussie jobs, um, will ensure that money spent on tech is spent in Australia as opposed to being spent entirely offshore where there's zero benefit to Australia.
5: Look, that's my belief. You know, at the end of the day, we've... You know, to give You to give you a case in point example, Trevor, my, my company, Station 5, we historically only brought in Australian talent. In the last year, 2021 alone, uh, we we hired approximately 60 staff uh, as full-time employees offshore uh, as a business that had never historically hired offshore talent. Right. And so that kind of speaks for itself in terms of, I guess, the growth of the sector, but in in terms of investment, but similarly, the lack of talent that's just available here.
1: And you hear this. You hear. Um, I was talking to a. Don't want to be too specific, but a company that you know needed a new app, uh, but big company, uh, and they were like, "We've advertised and we haven't had any responses, and we're paying good money. There's literally just no talent out there, and that's, you know, going to create either a situation where they're paying overs, and therefore people are leaving existing jobs to go to those overs." Or it's gonna mean the work goes offshore and that doesn't work really well for the Australian economy overall. So what what's the call here? Is this a like a pre-election push to get a conversation started about opening the migration intake? Are you looking to have it higher than it was before COVID or just getting it back to normal?
5: I think I think we need to see growth. I mean, we've seen growth of investment and we've seen a shortfall of supply. So the demand has actually increased. The supply has decreased, which is pretty dire. The, to, to to kind of you know, add color to the picture, Trevor, the, the the reality is also from a salary perspective, just to talk about how drastic this, this increase is, because this mm. isn't a 30 40% increase in salary. Yeah. A senior engineer who's generally classified as having about seven plus years of experience commercially, so post-university or other tertiary education, having seven plus years of experience, mm-hmm. the industry now considers a senior engineer to have four plus years of experience. We've lowered our expectations oh. due to lack of talent. And then similarly, the salary has increased, I kid you not, from February to February. So, February 2019, two years ago, to February 2020, uh, 2022, sorry, rather. Sorry, 2020 to
0: 2022,
5: there we go. Three uh, over that two year period, we've seen an increase from 120 grand, which is what it was for a senior engineer back then, to, uh, to 200 grand now in February of this year. So we've seen an astronomical growth and a, and a diminishment in terms of the, the overall expectation for quality.
1: That's a huge, sorry, that's a huge salary. I'm just seeing. Oh, it's thinking, ludicrous. Yeah. Why am I not a coder? Um, what have I well, missed Well, you you've got to you've, think,
5: you've, you've, you've studied computer science at university, mm. you're coming out of university 21, 22 years old, you then go kind of do four years of commercial experience you're still in your mid to late 20s and you're demanding a salary of 200 grand. It's absolutely ridiculous when you think about it, right?
1: I'll but- be honest, it is, but I wonder then, I mean, you're, you're telling me it's ridiculous, so I'm assuming it is, but I just feel like sometimes I'm just completely out of touch with what people earn today. Um, I mean, that 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 would strikes me as being, you know, three times what I would have expected. I would have assumed that, you know… Uh, I don't know, I would have thought 80 to 100, um, you know, after three or four years out of uni and then, you know, maybe growing to 150 somewhere down the track. But like 200 grand is like senior management money.
5: Yeah. I mean, that's what, what you just pointed out in terms of three, four years after uni, 80 to 100 grand, that's what it was, right? That was reasonable. That was affordable to a Sydney startup, an SME, Now you can imagine, like, what startup do you think, like, what early stage startup or small business or even medium business can afford to pay 200 grand for just one engineer? Mind you, you need a team of these. We need a team of these people. You don't just have one. Right. So this is is kind of what's going wrong. I'd also say the issue is kind of twofold and particularly relevant coming back to your point earlier about kind of pre-election time. So it is a twofold issue on the one hand. You do have the kind of, you know, the issue of lack of uh, skilled visa immigrants coming in who are able to, you know, supply the talent uh, on that side. Mm. On the other side, you've actually got an education problem where what you learn at university is not really relevant to get you into a job day one after graduating. So the university degrees, while maybe, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago, you know, I guess, upskilled you in a capacity that then made you, quote-unquote, job ready. Now what we're finding is because the technology has evolved so rapidly over the last three to four years, the university degrees have failed to keep up. And so those university degrees, uh, you now actually need to take bridging courses from other education streams that are non-university education streams to make you job ready. And so this is creating even more of a supply issue that we didn't see you know, six, seven odd years ago, that's, mm. that's also now just contributing to that overall issue.
1: And the other thing is, and this is a, an old man's comment on um, younger people today, but I guess there's no desire to take people on in the early stage without that big degree and train them up and get them to a point because there's not much loyalty these days in, in employment, is there? So if you, you spent all your time and effort on someone you know, on 60 70 80 grand in the very early stages essentially with no skills to get them to the levels of 120 grand kind of person and, and then start paying the 120 they're likely to nick off and go somewhere else anywhere so your investment in them is doesn't pay off that's that's a challenge that exists in in employment today as well there's not a real there's not a real loyalty around and I, I guess that's pr- partly fueled by the money side of things isn't it
5: yeah, spot on. I mean, when it comes to the university degrees and large corporates having a prerequisite for those, that's absolutely the case. And the industry does need a change. Because if you look at if you look at the market, those who are willing to pay those high, high salaries that I've that I've spoken about, mm. they're the banks, the insurance companies, you know, they're those large kind of ASX listed institutions, government, they're the ones who are kind of, you know, willing and able to actually pay those fees. But at the same time, I guess what's what's interesting is I'd argue that some of those some of those institutions are behind. Reason being, you look at the likes of Google, who would in you know on a global scale would be seen as an industry leader in technology, don't require you to have a university uh, degree, whether it be a bachelor's or otherwise, to uh, to be ready for one of their jobs. So they know. Isn't longer that the complete
1: opposite of what they they used to be? A hundred percent university degree Absolutely. oriented.
5: Yeah, spot on. So now you don't to go work at Google. You no longer need a computer science degree. No longer a requirement. They list it on their front page of their jobs website. Wow, it's no secret. Yeah,
1: that's a. When did that occur? I mean, it might be years, but that's fu- that's a fundamental change for them because it was a. It was actually it was across their business. It wasn't even just in computer computer science. It was even if you wanted to be in comms, you needed a university degree. And it's like you know what? Most people have got on the job training there. People. <laughs> It's a, it's a very stra- it was a very strange requirement so not only so our universities aren't keeping up our on the job training is is behind the biggest leaders like Google we've got a long way to go if we want to really be that you know Silicon Valley down under
5: yeah spot on yeah universities aren't keeping up the so they're not they're not preparing you for the role so you as a student now to be quote unquote job ready in this high demand industry now need to go out and do other degrees or other kind of you know, study other kind of shorter term, six to 12 month tertiary education, post degree to get yourself job ready for one of these high paying roles. Uh, But then the high paying roles are kind of super exclusive. And then, uh, and also in, in very high demand. And so, you know, as from a talent acquisition perspective, impossible to find the right people. So it is, it is kind of a comedy of errors here, Trevor, because we're seeing that from all sides of the market, there's just no understanding about what's actually needed and we're just seeing more and more money going into this, but not necessarily any money in the right in the right. Uh, I guess you know, going through the right channels, going through the university streams to to recalibrate them, uh, going into going into people and startups to get them ready and able to to hire this talent. So there are kind of problems coming in from multiple different angles, and and it is kind of laughable when
1: you look at it. Who's responsible? Because um, it's Jesus, all well and good for us good to, to bang on about it, right? But who makes the change? Obviously, you know, if universities are, are not streamed correctly and, and their curriculum essentially isn't right, that's them, to, they need to fix that. And, you know, um, I guess employers need to be banging on university stores and saying, dudes, we need people who are actually doing this and that. So I feel like that's not a government thing. But I feel like one thing I'm hearing from you is that there is government money going towards things that um, essentially can't be delivered if not, they're being, not wasted, but they're being over, overpaid because if we had more talent here, both I- imported and, and educated, then that money might be better spent. You know, saying
5: as a government, you know, saying we're going to spend $1.3, $1.4 billion over the next four years into the, you know, push that into the technology sector, just making that claim seems, seems strong. You know in the sense that we support innovation and, they, and it just definitely does suggest that but having that lack of understanding as to what the sector actually needs and where it's bleeding uh, is a very different story and so is the government doing the right thing by pushing money into the sector yes uh, do they are they pushing it into the right components of the, the sector and actually addressing the issues no i mean you know, universities receive so much in the way of government funding indirectly through through hex programs and the like. But there's nothing that's really forcing those universities to change and adapt yeah. to what the students actually need. You know, we've got students who are finishing off the HSC and are going into computer science degrees thinking that that's the best thing for them. And quite frankly, it's not. You know, if they want to go work with the likes of Google, which let's be honest, if you're doing computer that's science... That's a much better I'm
1: university, there, isn't it? Like if you, if you, yeah. if you, if you finish year 12... On a high, and you're pretty smart. You get a job at Google. mate, four years at Google. That's your university education, and what a hell of a resume over and above any bachelor's qualification, post grady, whatever the heck you can put on your on your resume. Surely.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Trevor, let me ask you this: Of you know, if you're going through the later years of of high school, thinking I'm going to go do computer science. Are you thinking I'm going to do computer science so I can go work at an, at an ASX-listed insurance company? You're thinking I want to go work at Google or Microsoft.
1: Yeah, that's true. Why, why would they? I mean, who's, <laughs> whose goal is to work at the bank?
5: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spot on.
1: Well, I I admire your uh, openness about it. I, I, I fear that there's no clear, easy answer, um, but I hope that you're um, – I guess your your gusto here uh, has some impact on a few people and just gets a conversation going. And hopefully you can knock on doors in Canberra and have that conversation because, you know, no one wants to waste government money, um, but it does feel like it's a, it's a big ship to right. Um, but hopefully it's, it's, it's turned around in the right time frame that we don't lose the tech industry in Australia, mate.
5: Matt, I certainly hope so. Yeah, I don't want to see these jobs all going overseas in the way that I'm seeing at the moment. I want to see the local tech sector grow and I don't want to see that, you know, this is a replication of what happened in the manufacturing industry back in the 1970s when jobs started going offshore to China and the like. So I really hope, I really hope the right people are, are listening and that, that this change happens.
1: And that's speaking as someone who's impl- had, had to employ people overseas when you would have preferred to do it locally.
5: Yeah, spot on. It's what we did historically and, and now, we've, you know, our hand has been forced.
1: Lambros, good luck, mate.
5: Thanks, Trevor. This is the EFTM Podcast.
3: The FTM.
1: So I was just thinking about um, politics, <laughs> as you do, um, and I was curious. We have an election coming up. So what do we want to know? Um, I want to get Ed music back on um, because I think he's a straight shooter. I think he talks reasonably honestly. Um, who else should I be talking to? Who else do you want to hear from? Uh, I don't want to talk about rubbish personality politics. I want to talk about policy because what policy is there? What are we voting on? <laughs> like like, what is the actual policy conversation here other than we hate them for what they've done, it's time to move on, or they're doing a great job. We, we made it through. Let's keep going. Like if those are our two options, that's rubbish. Um I'm kind of just thinking, I was just thinking out loud about it there. Um, especially after that chat with Lambros, because there's so many things, isn't there? So many little things going on. Um, I definitely got to talk to Ed Husky again because I want to, and I want to listen back to that chat I had with him early in the pandemic where the, frankly, the world was a better place politically. Um, and I just feel like it's gone off the rails again. Um, but that's a conversation for another day, I think. But yeah, I you know, I need ideas here for this show more than anything else. Um, I try as much as I can to, to think about this before the day of recording so that I can come up with interviews like those today and not just have back to back callers because sometimes people, you know, obviously that's the same thing every week. Sometimes, but it, it is what it is. But yeah, I want to think about other other things that we want to know as a part of the community. What do we what do we need to engage with? What do we want to hear and what do we want to know? And just generally, who do you want to hear from? Whether it's politics or otherwise. Um, my early day background was as a radio producer. And it's whether it takes a week, a month, or an hour, getting a hold of someone is such a great thrill. It really is. So I still get a thrill out of it. Um, so yeah, if there's someone you think I should be speaking to not just around the election, but just generally around tech or just someone interesting that you think I might know, let me know. You can always send me an email, Uh, eftm.com, click on Ask Trev. If you've got the Android app, you can just click Ask Trev and just send me an email, really easy. Um, And, yeah, let's have a think about that, folks. Let's build this thing together. Trevor Long taking your calls. If you've got a tech question, get in touch. Stuart's on the line. G'day, Stuart. Hey, Trevor. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. What can I do for you, mate? So thinking about an electric car for myself,
0: it'll be be a daily drive. I do about uh, 60 to 70 kilometres every day. A big chunk of that is on the freeway, so at speed. Um, My question really is where do I go to figure out Um, if I want to try and, you know, create my own energy, panels on the roof, a battery in the yard, Mm. where do I go to figure out how big a battery I need? I can work out what I need for home through looking at my electricity bills. Fair enough. But how do I know how much, you know, how much bigger battery I need to feed the car?
1: Yeah, so I think the challenge is if you were thinking about having a home, so let's say you had a home solar and home battery, and you expected the home battery to power your home at night and entirely charge your car at night, you would be... The big battery, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I just don't think it's how how it works. Here, Here's essentially what people do is once you get into the solar world, you start then doing some really interesting shopping around for your energy company around who's giving me the best feed-in tariffs, Yeah, which is I'm not at home during the day, I'm generating electricity, how much can I earn from that generated electricity? Um, if you have a battery, then what you do is you charge that battery... And anything in excess of that, you sell off to the grid. But at night time, you don't need to utilize the grid because you've got that battery for the most part. But then yep. there's still basically what you do is again you negotiate with an electricity company to have just the most outrageously great off-peak rates because your car at sixty to seven k's a day, sixty to seventy k's a day, is only going to need to charge probably midnight. What time do you leave for work in the morning? Seven, mate. You're going, to, you're going to plug the ch- car in when you get home at night and you're going to tell the car through the settings in the car, you're going to say, I want it to be ready at 7 o'clock in the morning. It won't pick up a charge until it needs to. So it'll be plugged in and it'll know there's electricity there. But if you've driven 80Ks that day, it might start charging at 11 o'clock at night. If you've driven 50Ks that day, it might start charging at 1am in the morning. It'll pick it up when it needs to to complete the charge as best required plus you won't charge 100% every day because that's not good for the battery anyway, so you probably keep within the 20, 20 to 80% window. So what you do is you're essentially paying a super cheap rate to charge the car overnight, um, but you're not pulling it off the battery. It would be a phenomenal number of batteries required because do you, do you know off the top of your head what, are, what capacity batteries you, you're talking about for, for the average kind of home install that you've looked at thus far for your own home usage?
0: Uh, anywhere around uh, 15 Maybe uh, maybe 18, depending on what it is. My, my complication at my place is, is a bit different. We have three-phase air conditioning. So yep. what I've been told is that, you know, they'll only uh, install the battery against one phase, not against three. So right. you know, no matter what I do, I still need to be
1: connected. And, and that's – look, I don't think any of us are really trying to go off the grid, are we? We're just trying to completely and utterly <laughs> minimise well, – aren't we just trying to minimise our costs <laughs> to the greatest extent?
0: Oh, I don't know. If I could go off the grid, yeah, I think I would You would, right,
1: right. Would, are you married? Yes. Would the wife forego the the air conditioning for that off grid experience?
0: No. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you go camping, Trevor, you gotta take the yeah. air dryer. And yeah. So
1: so it's a balancing act, right? Um but again, um I would be having a conversation with people about that. I wouldn't be talking to just one solar company about that. I would be having a, a decent conversation with people because I'd be amazed if there wasn't some form of solution for, you know, the air con in a solar world, right? So the type of inverter that you buy might be different, you know, those kind of things. Yeah. But I do think that if you're talking about a 15, 10 to 15 kilowatt battery, you know, a, a car today has 50 to 90. So yep. you, That it would be insane to buy those. But the other thing to do is, I don't know how far away you are from this purchase, but <clears throat> I drove the Nissan Leaf earlier in the year, no, last year, and the new version of that has a thing called vehicle-to-grid, now, I saw
0: that. I read it on your chat. Yeah.
1: Now it's just been approved. the the infrastructure, the the wall box, the inverter has just been approved for Australia. Ten grand, but that ten grand replaces that cost of a battery. So what you do is you plug your car in at night, and yeah, it will draw from the grid between you know one a.m. and six six a.m. seven a.m. But it'll also power your home the rest of the evening. So it becomes a really fascinating experience because Even if you get home at, you know, five in the afternoon, there's still a couple of hours of sunlight that might Mm -hmm. actually charge into the car directly that way as well. Like, it's a really interesting time because you buy a great electric car now, in five years from now, it's going to be a whole new world. I really do think that vehicle-to-grid stuff will be overwhelmingly different in a few years from now. Other companies will jump on that that Nissan plan. The biggest problem was that the the Nissan has a different plug to all the other cars, and the plug... (laughs) the plug the ch- chademo or whatever they call it it's it's the only one certified for vehicle to grid for two-way con- conversation in electricity terms right. which is why they use that that style of plug it can it can be charged by both but it has oh, okay. that one available for that reason um so yeah it's so mate,
0: but, if i can sorry
1: if i can ask the second
0: question the the batteries um, that people talk about when they get their, uh, you know, their home system set up. Is yep. there any particular type or shape or flavor that does or doesn't suit charging vehicles? And does your, you know, does your normal wall box plug into your battery, or is that not the way it works?
1: Oh, I would. If if you've got that problem with aircon, it'll be the same with a car.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought. Because
1: you, like you can trickle charge your car off single phase, but if you've got three phase available, you'd be mad not to install a three phase wall box so that you're getting the fastest charge possible. Um, so I feel like it's a lot of balancing in that situation. Like I've, I've not gone away from the idea of a home battery yet. I've got to get solar first, but I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to think of the car as a separate thing because well, the way I look at it is if I end up using the grid and needing the grid for that, you know, overnight charge, I'm going to pay bugger all for it. And it's always going to be way better than petrol.
0: Yeah, a couple of my mates have been talking about this for now for probably a good six months, and they're all saying the same thing batteries aren't quite there yet. Price is still not right. It's it's not, you know, you're talking about an eight year, something like that, payback. And, you know, in that time, your batteries uh, broken down a little, might not continue to work after that period. So,
1: yeah, I, I don't disagree entirely, um, which is why I like the idea of the car thing, because you're going to change cars every five or six years, right? So that's brilliant. Like, you, you're, it's designed to be replaced in the family so every every five, six years you're going to get the latest in battery technology for your home and car. Like, wow. That to me is is where the future lies. I'm, that's what I'm most excited about, about the electric vehicle homes situation. Um, so I think as much as it's not the answer you wanted, I think the, the answer is to b- build the best solar off-grid home you can with solar and battery as a combination wherever an expert really sees fit. And I do think that there's some really good people out there who know batteries better than me or your mates that could advise <laughs> on that. Um, you know, my mate Stephen Fenwick has the Sonnen battery system whereby he kind of doesn't own the electricity. Like, he doesn't get the benefit of the feed-in tariff, but he only pays 40 bucks a month. Full stop. That's it. So if he needs a bunch of electricity for his air conditioner – he just, it's just part of his plan. So maybe in that world, you're better off looking at that Sonnen situation, which is like a virtual power plant among other Sonnen homeowners. You're actually the first person I've thought of, that, of, of recommending that too because you're talking about such a complex uh, amount of electricity. You're better off making it all green um, and using other people's solar, other people's batteries and your batteries to drive each other's appliances, homes and cars.
0: Sonnen, S-O-N-E-N. S-O-N-N-E-N, I
1: double think it is. It's Yeah, they're right, a German we'll company, but there's an Aussie mob doing them. Um, and basically, it's all—it's a subscription. So if they'll do an analysis of your of your bills, they'll go, "Well, you you need this much energy per uh, per month. Um, you can put this many panels on. It'll still cost you upfront for the panels, but every yep. month after that, you pay forty bucks, sixty bucks. It's like a mobile phone plan, and you don't pay for your usage because your usage is estimated to fit within the, the, the agreement that you've had, just like a capped mobile phone plan. That sounds worth of a look. Yeah, I, I'd have a look at that. I think it's fascinating because then that three-phase problem you've got and the the car being powered off, off the house, yeah. um, you're essentially being powered off other people's batteries as well as yours. You know, it's, it's kind of a not real situation. It's not directly linked to other people's homes, but it's essentially them just buying everyone's electricity and selling it back to everyone and hoping that they don't need to buy too much off the actual grid. Um, see, I don't like it because I want the ability to negotiate my excess usage into the grid. I want that money, but I don't think, it's the, I don't think I'm being the smartest financial person there, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I actually think the Sonnen thing that Stephen's got is, is quite brilliant. So feel free to get in touch with him. to get you, He'll just sell it to you. He'll think it's a. It is. He loves it. He's a, a massive advocate for it, but have a little look around at Sonnen.
0: Thank you, mate. Appreciate your time.
1: All right, buddy. Good luck. Thank you. um, you These are the fascinating questions that we all have (laughs) and we're all learning at the same time, all of us. So let me know what you think or if you've got other opinions. All right. Thank you for listening. Um, A quick one and a good one. You know, we, we don't do this for a time period. It's just it is what it is. Um. it's just been a bit of a crazy day, I'll be honest. There's just been a bit going on, and the phone hasn't stopped ringing. There's some stories to write. There's just things to do, folks. So I've got to get back to that. But uh, as always, you can find me at eftm.com. Join the Man Cave. Uh, Just search Facebook for the EFTM Man Cave. And, of course, if you haven't got the apps, download the app, the EFTM app. Just search EFTM in Google Play or Apple App Store on your iPhone. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next week or thereabouts.